Hey, friends, this is a little bit of a longer show. Stacy's going to start out talking a little bit about her backstory with evangelical Christianity in America, how she got into yoga. And then in the second segment, we are going to go deep into some research related to a very important question, which is why is it that sometimes people that are otherwise decent folks are resistant to or reluctant to report abuse when they see it in religious communities. There's some research on this, and it really helps us to see that protocols and procedures are important, but they're not enough. We need to educate ourselves, our children, and folks that are religious church workers and uh, religious practitioners, clergy, in the ways in which psychology sometimes works against our best interest and the best interest of vulnerable people in our midst. You should also be aware that while we don't want to dwell on abuse and stories about abuse in every show, this is important for giving you the background to why we are doing what we're doing. And we are going to talk about sexual abuse in the context of church members not reporting it. So if that's going to be difficult for you, maybe you don't want to listen to this episode or turn it off after the first segment. We don't have any call-ins this time because we already were running too long. Hope you enjoy the show. You can jump forward about an hour in if you want to just get the research. And you can also catch all of this stuff on the show notes. Well, let's get going. Welcome, friends, to the Protect Your Noggin podcast. We offer lessons and outfoxing religious wolves so that we can all find deep peace and freedom. Go to our website at protectyournoggin.org where you'll learn how to be a part of the show, find show notes, and then also check out our other resources. Just so you know, we often address sensitive subjects that could bring up past traumas because we are not afraid to dig deep. But don't worry, we got this. Oh, friends. Oh, friends. We're so glad that you came back for round two, season one, episode two, and we didn't lose you. Or this is the first one you listened to. (laughs) And in that case, I hope that we see you for season one, episode three. (laughs) Uh, But uh, here's the thing. Uh, We're having so much fun with these topics and talking about them as we're traveling around the country. We had a great time yesterday. We hiked up to a sunset viewing of the bats Two to 300,000 bats flying out of an old iron mine cave. And it was just beautiful. They flew over our heads. On a full moon night. On a full moon. <laughs> and you could hear them, but just very, very... You can also smell them a little You could bit. smell a little guano, but guano is the smell of, of, of nice fertilizer. If you've, if you've been in the, a nice little bonsai garden or something, yeah, people no, love the, great, the guano. And uh, the, the dog freaked out a little bit. <laughs> because at at some point she must have heard the, the screeching of, of hundreds of thousands of small mammals. And mm-hmm. uh, she was either that or bears. We did not get a dog that is large enough to really defend us from anything. And so she was, I kind of held her for a little while in the dark because there was And they also coyotes. come out, they also come out at sunset, which is when the coyotes all start to howl. And when you're high up on a mountain and you can look down at a vast, vast valley and there's no structures, no people, but just... The sounds of howling coyotes. 
It's fun if you're a person, but it's not fun if you're a little one-year-old pup. Now, one little fun fact we've heard about coyotes is that they howl and they listen for the response. And if they don't hear very many in return, then they'll end up having more babies. And if they hear a lot more, then they'll have less babies. So it's really almost impossible to eradicate them because (laughs) they'll keep coming. They'll keep creating more. We got rid of the timber wolf, but these coyotes, they just, they're little wolves. There's little wolves running around and we seem okay with that. There's lions outside of our little RV right now in the forest here. And our home back in California, also, they're getting quite bold. And The coyotes back in California, yeah, right near the kids. Near the suburbs. They've been ripping dogs off of people's leashes. So that's a whole other thing. Yeah. And like staring guys down, they're doing their barbecue yeah. in the backyard, apparently. But that's not what this show is about. No. This is about foxes mm-hmm. and wolves. Mm-hmm. Uh, y'all and we are learning to be well, foxes. And outfoxing. Yeah, and outfoxing the wolves. But we like, I like wolves as a as a... As a species. And you kind of have a relationship with wolves, actually. My right? whole life, my, my recurring nightmare was with the wolf. But it was when, at one point, when, when I finally, as my childhood nightmares finally ended, there was a wolf in my dream staring over my brother's crib. And I came over and I thought, oh, this is no good. And then he sat down in a rocking chair and he had a tweed jacket on and a, and a sweater vest and glasses mm-hmm. and a pipe, like a Sherlock Holmes All kind of pipe. Up. And I said, well... Well, why, what's going on here? How come, how come you're not here to eat us and, and do your, your mayhem? Oh, he's sophisticated. Yeah. And, and this was, I don't know how little I was, but I was very young. He said, you're going to tame me through learning. Mm. I don't know what that meant. And that's not the kind of thing, I didn't even really know what a, you know, kind of old-timey <laughs> professor would look like. We didn't even really think about this before the podcast, no, which is just, kind of interesting. Yeah, you just brought it up. Yeah. It is weird. But in that sense, that's kind of what it's about. Because really, I, I think one thing we should say is that when it comes to our, our idea of outfoxing the wolves, we're, we're very intentional about that, in that the outfoxing is playful. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's just like... We don't take ourselves too seriously. We don't want to take it too seriously, but it's also like a, a kind of sign of boldness. It's this idea that um, you're not really... You don't really have the power to frighten me. Right. I'm going to be careful. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be wise and wily at times, you know, and we're going to help other people learn to do that as well. But we're not going to fear. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in terms of wolves, we're not talking primarily about taking down this or that bad guy. We're talking about the process of learning the skills, kind of the self-defense or the spiritual defense against the dark arts skills to help us to evade these very common patterns, again, they can happen in religion, these manipulative patterns. It could happen in a multi-level marketing scheme. It could happen at business. It could happen in the sports team. We're focusing on religion. Mm-hmm. And, and we've and we have heard the concept of the the wolf and, and sheep's, sheep's clothing. clothing. That's the whole. That's and the so whole we're thing. we're basically concept. by calling them out, by calling out the wolves, whatever in whatever fashion that they. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, we find them in. We hope that you become tame and delightful and smoke a pipe in you my can, brother's living, my brother's bedroom. <laughs> right, but then you can easily navigate around them without having them have the upper hand. And this is, in fact, what happens in the wild as we've been watching. It's really interesting how deer, as we've been like walking in the forest, mm. and the dog will see a deer, and the deer will see the and dog. They'll check each other out. But the deer doesn't get overwhelmed and panic. No. The deer just sits there and And waits until the deer needs to run. And when the deer runs, then the deer freaks out. (laughs) And then when the deer is not being chased, it goes back to its normal heart rate. Unlike the rest of us, where we're living in a perpetual state of anxiety. (laughs) A lot of us with with our smartphones and so forth. Here's the main thing, though. Wolves are also 
you know, the system. Mm-hmm. And the system kind of creates wolves in many ways. We're not taking the, the culpability away from bad actors. But one of the things we find in, in social psychology research is that there are ways in which certain structures can make certain bad behaviors very likely. Mm-hmm. And there's not maybe compassion we'll talk about maybe a little bit, but certainly understanding. Um, there's an old parable about uh, the, the scorpion and the frog. Sometimes it's different in different cultures. But the, the idea is that there's a flood in this little um, area, uh, and the, the scorpion asks the frog if it can get a ride across the river to safety. Mm. And the, the frog says, uh, well, that's stupid because you're a scorpion. You're, right. you're no You'll sting me. And then the, uh, eventually the scorpion says, why would I do that? I, you know, we both drown. So hops on the frog's back. The frog starts uh, you know, paddling, swimming across the current. And halfway and through, and oh, feels the sting. And why, do you remember, Stacey, what, what did the scorpion say? The frog, well, the frog says, why'd what? you do this? Why'd you do this? You're going to kill us both. <laughs> and then the, the scorpion said, well, I'm a scorpion. That's what I do. So, you know, this is why we want to say outfoxing wolves, because we don't want to take in the anger and the hatred and the, the, the we, we don't want to let them control what our mood is. Mm-hmm. The fox is playful and also wise. But we could have said combating the religious bad guys right. or taking them down or fight. No, 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 no. Um, we're learning to say there are certain kind of beasts out there that we are going to be wary of, keep them in their own, you know. But <laughs> in, a, in a sense, you can rise above them. It's important. It's not always possible emotionally, tr- but that's try. the idea. That's what, yeah. that, these are the lessons. Yeah. So that's what we're doing. Yep. Now, Stacy, I did too much talk and I do this a lot. That is my uh, my one of my worst traits, but it is also what pays the bills sometimes. <laughs> Me yakking. But today, I want to interview you about your upbringing in religious circles. You and I met where? Well, um, so we met wow, back in junior high at a non-denominational uh, evangelical Christian church in their youth group. It had been the biggest school, I mean, it had been the biggest church in town until Rick Warren got going with mm-hmm. Saddleback community church and we were in we were in some kind of maze i remember seeing you i said that girl's cute but we were just kids i said who's that girl in in the in the maze what was the maze made out of cardboard big cardboard boxes and so i remember even my my dad had come i guess as a volunteer to help but i was i was there to help build it um and it was like, I think the fall harvest, part of the fall harvest celebration. Which you need to do in evangelicalism, friends, if you don't know the scene, because... We didn't really believe in Halloween as much or going trick-or-treating yeah, no, and all a, of that. So, so instead, we have fall harvest, and we invite the community um, to the church, and then they have different activities. And so the middle school is in charge of building this big cardboard maze um, for the younger kids to explore and get some candy if they successfully make it through. Now, last week, last week I mentioned um, yep. my school, that's sixth grade school. In that sixth grade school, they told me two sad things that I didn't mention. And that is one, that Star Wars is Hindu and I'm not allowed to watch it. Oh. And they said, it's okay if you did. You're not a sinner if you did watch it. Oh, but now. But you're, now that you know, you're, you're culpable. Yeah. And then after I got over that kind of, then they said the same thing about Halloween. They said, you're done with Halloween. <gasps> oh, no. But notice, there's one thing this ties into, I think, where your story goes. That even though it seems a little weird that they had to have an alternative to Halloween, 
it was really cool. Oh, we had fun. That was like the, I think our band, my band, this was in, I was in eighth grade. Yeah. Uh, me and the little garage band, we played our first concert at, yes. the, at the Halloween thing and it was life-giving. It was great. We and had For so me, it fun. was love at first sight when I saw you there playing. Oh, <laughs> well, it, you know. <laughs> the, the rock star thing, it, it, there's a halo effect, you know. Oh, well, anyway, so we met, but, but, yes. do you, but do you agree with what I'm saying? It's yes. Th- there's really, really positive things and also some weird things. Like, I can't go to Halloween, that's bad. But the fact that there's this other thing, that's really nice. Right. And it, and and to be honest, I think, um, I mean, it was, I mean, it was a large church. And so there were lots of areas to explore. And so it didn't get boring. And oh, no. and it felt way safer um, than going door was, to door. And yeah. I mean, this is like what we're kind of growing up and we're getting a little too old to trick or treat anyway, you know, so it's, it gives us something right. to do. Um, but it was also kind of the time where... I don't know, sometimes you're hearing uh, probably rumors of people putting razor blades and candy bars. And- well, in those days, there was a false assumption that there was a widespread ritual satanic cult that was kidnapping kids. And, and there was always these um, believed urban legends. Sometimes there would be real things that would happen. But, you know, around Halloween, uh, that sort of thing would get people really going. Mm-hmm. Now, when you got to church, how old were you before? Because I came later just so that our band could play. You know, yeah, with, no, I started, um, Scotty Copeland. I started in third grade. Um, I went to the, I think VBS and, um, that's vacation Bible school. Yeah. Friends. Vacation Bible school. So you guys, you were deep in it before middle school. Yeah. I, I can't remember which, I don't know who went first, but my mom and my dad both eventually participated in Bible study fellowship. And it was that, that brought them to that church. It's and a then, parachurch organization that I guess they met at the congregation there. Right. So they met there and it was something they did in the weekdays and stuff, you know, like I guess once a week or something. And Community, wisdom, even, sharing. My parents got so involved. They both became leaders. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> yeah. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Like my mom. Really go to church anymore, <laughs> like, they, no. Yeah. And, my, and I can't imagine my mom, like, you know, wanting to step forward and, and being a Bible study leader. Right, you know, right now I don't really see it, but it, I didn't, it was, I didn't yeah. even know that. She got, they got in deep. And so we all started going to the church. Um, and I really, uh, I don't know, I, I, I enjoyed it. I, I remember, <laughs> there's my earliest memory, um, I, I remember them talking about uh, missionaries. And and uh, there was a, a an, vol- elder. an elder that um, he was in charge of the, the Sunday school. And he was had all these pictures and stuff of this missionary family. And they're talking about how they're going to be coming. And, um, and then the missionary family, they come and they bring these bugs and things that they were eating. And I just remember praying, dear God, please don't make me a missionary. I don't want to have to eat bugs. <laughs> and I just, I didn't understand how it all worked. I didn't understand that God would, you know, place that desire in my heart. I thought that maybe just if I was too much in church or whatever, that I'd have to ultimately eat strange bugs in foreign lands. And now I don't even think it's that bad of an idea, to be honest. I mean, That's I pretty much what we've done a lot of our <laughs> yeah. lives yeah. in a different sort of way. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, at that same event, I didn't put the two and two together. At that same event, I ate my first Brazilian giant ant and realized that I must travel the earth and eat everything I can except for, what are the three things, Stacey? This is a quiz on you. See if you love your bud, well, your husband. I do love you very much. What are three animals that I will not eat? I will eat anything and I, I, I'm against cruelty, you know, and so I kind of shy more towards the, the piscatarian chicken, ethically raised chicken and so eggs. So you're not going to eat a monkey? I will not eat a friggin' primate. How dare you? Now, if it tries to bite my face off and I kill it, then I'll eat it. But I, they're, little, they're like little people running around. 
Okay. A one-eater monkey, that's one. Survey says number one answer is not monkey. It's monkey's number two. Okay, number, I'm missing number one. Um, I'm drawing a blank because of the things. Well, th- okay. I, I've eaten kangaroo, uh, snapping turtle. I know. Alligator's easy. Keep going. Um, and I don't think it's horse because you've. Oh, we had such good horse in France. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Even I'm you so like sorry. that. I'm Even so you sorry. Even you like that. You were like with me, and that was our anniversary. No, no, no. I know. I, I knew it wasn't that's, horse. That's hard. No, that's no, hard on me. No, no. Take that back. <laughs> no, no, no. That's no. good. The answer, Stacey, is, uh, is uh, marine mammal, and I'm thinking the dolphins and the whales. Oh, of course, yeah. And this is because when I was at SeaWorld, and I would, now I'm sad about SeaWorld, but I, I looked into the dolphin pool, and, and then my sunglasses fell into the pool. And then the dolphin, I thought I killed it because the dolphin ate it. And then I was sad. But the dolphin didn't eat it. The dolphin swam around and he handed it to me. I remember. I, like, I saw like, that. Yeah, you were there. I, I were there. And it threw it up and you were able to catch it. <sighs> and, he, and what was weird is there were multiple people standing yeah. around the pool. Tons of people. And knew who it was. He knew who it was that it belonged to. I mean, I'm so. So then it was that no, no good. SeaWorld's no good anymore. And, uh, and uh, I am not, um, not going to eat these things. In, under any circumstances. Now, now I look what I've done it again. Stacy, this is about you. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a third animal, though, that everybody's waiting to hear. What else. You said three that you wouldn't eat. I forgot the third animal. I've always said oh, three Oh, I'm animals. sorry. I didn't mean to call you out on what you don't remember. Anyway, we're getting old. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. Um, I don't know. I guess, if, I guess that's it. It's, just, it's, just do- it's <laughs> dolphin and, and monkey. Maybe it's whale, dolphin, and monkey or something like that. Okay. Now, the thing is, though, Stacy. As much as it gave us a place to hang out, our experience within the kind of Christian world, um, it wasn't always going to be healthy for you. What are the things that you learned? When you look back, what, what is your kind of general summary assessment of, of, of how it was growing up in a church kind of environment? Mm, well, I think in the setting that we grew up, um, I would say, I mean, I don't know about the environment, but the the actual church that we grew up in, one of the things that um, I just never quite understood was the the church splits that would always happen. (laughs) And like, they're big deals. And it's like, you see this, where you think this community of people that have all built something together. And then you see that just this big division. And just as a kid, witnessing all of a sudden, you know, a, a big, huge chunk of the congregation and your, some of your friends. And they leave in anger. And they leave. And it's like this, yeah, this big, and so then that's like the, then the church kind of has to rally together and rebuild after. And I think it was the second one at the same church that I was like, there's got to be another way, you mm. know? Um, and then you look at all the denominations that continually split. It just seems like that's actually just a huge part of Christian churches in general. Yeah, shards of glass everywhere. And it does. This is one of the number one reasons why freshmen say that they don't go to church anymore. I asked them. I thought, is it the synoptic problem? Is it, you know, Bible discrepancies? Is it uh, the problem of evil? It's, it's number one, is there are so many different competing angry voices. How can I trust any of them? Right. And uh, the shards of glass everywhere. There's, you know, 18 you know, splinter groups of the Lutherans and the Baptists aren't even a denomination. They're, they're all over the place, but it's the evangelical cult of personality, Orange County, California thing that really 
hit that hard, right? So Yeah, well, and, and the fact that the church is sort of, the pastor is so important to the whole way that the church is structured, because we this was non-denominational, so... Right. Um, you know, there's really nobody else overseeing him. There's the elder board and stuff, but the the personality of the pastor becomes the personality of the church. And in our case, the pastor did not like contemporary music or clapping in church. And then there was another group that wanted contemporary music. And in, in a large part, the history is that we we built a very large um, parking lot. We quadrupled the parking lot mm-hmm. right before one of the splits. And then all of a sudden, now you've got this big old parking lot. And everybody went off to the big old massive, massive church, um, Saddleback Community Church. Yeah. Interesting. Do you remember what my connection is to that? To Saddleback Community Church? Oh, well, I just remember that your band, that same band that you were referring to, um, because Saddleback wanted to build in the canyon. Our canyon where there was was the deer and the mountain. Yeah, we would go hiking up there. and, 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 And they... I mean, if you haven't ever been there, I mean, it's a massive property, it, you know, it, huge parking lots, huge The sprawl buildings. made it all irrelevant anyway. It wasn't just the church, it was everything. Right, but, but yeah. so you played, uh, uh, it was a benefit concert to help try to save the canyon. All with, the hippies came out. And who was the, the headliner? Uh, Robbie, Robbie Krieger, Krieger of the Doors. Yeah, so it was all the hippies came out of the woodwork. That did not ingratiate me later on when I wanted to be a youth pastor at Saddleback Church. <laughs> that, that kind of backfired. But, but yeah, so that was that was kind of our upbringing. Now, um, can you summarize what's your general takeaway? It was uh, on the whole in your life. How did it affect your life growing up in an evangelical non-denominational church? Um, I mean, obviously, it formed who I am. I mean, I I think that it it laid a great foundation for me to have you know some basic biblical understanding and i think one of the i guess most powerful thing is um when when there was one of the later church splits that we ultimately walked away from the church i guess we split with you and i well you and i decided like this is kind of ridiculous so we ended up taking and i was a senior in high school you had just graduated because we were dating at the time we've been dating for uh, two years yeah and so um, we started visiting all the different local churches um, just to see, you know, if there's another one that we wanted to join. But I think what I en- what was good about that process is that we went through trying to own our own faith. You know, it wasn't just about where our parents had brought or where my parents had brought us or where, you know, you had ended up because of a friend or whatever. Um, it was it was really an important time for us to focus on what do we care about in a church? And, right. you know, and, and anyway, so owning my own faith at that time was a very important piece of it. Um, and then I think that, that there's been, there's, you know, the church, it provided me with a network of friends. Um, it was, that was, you know, very important at the time, especially during high school um, growing up. So I didn't, I always in, was in public school, but um, the, the, the church, Youth group was where most of, you know, I hung out with you and that was our center of gravity. Yeah. And there was, there was our neighborhood had caught cause you had, you would drive around in your big old suburban and your family's room cause you had what your, your parents, you were the oldest of eight, eight, yeah. eight kids. So <laughs> you're anyway, so oldest of eight kids. And then you would drive around in the family suburban picking us all up and, you know, and all of us youth group kids, you know, in the summers we were inseparable going to the beach, you know, mm-hmm. switching off each other's house, making dinners. So that sense of community and those friendships were a big deal at that time. Um, and I, and there were other things, you know, like that, unfortunately we, 
witnessed um, that were unhealthier uh, when, you know, people are struggling through some real life situations and the way that some of the congregation members would handle it. I mean, even, I mean, at one point you were told you weren't allowed to hang around one of of our friends because your long hair was a bad witness apparently to, yeah. uh, to the other people out there that, you know, we're afraid that the, that this person would be associated with. We were kind of leaning heavy metal. And so I looked <laughs> Hessian and that was at that time, again, as I mentioned, there was that fear of ritual satanic cults. And they all thought that, uh, ACDC meant, uh, antichrist devil's children, kiss meant knights in Satan's service and so forth. So, Almost all of the heavy metal was suspect at the time, <laughs> and uh, we'll probably talk about that at a future date. But well, and what? And then those were the days of what? Afraid, fear of back, backward masking or whatever, and playing the yeah. music backwards that was going to be like that pops the up devil. From time to time. <laughs> but anyway, the point is, is that there were, um, and some, you know, some. There was positive and negative, some, you know, small on both ends, and then some pretty big things, um, which brings me to my passion about this podcast. There's a few things that go into play in that. And one is um, in noticing that the way that, that just trying to put together this puzzle, I love puzzles, as I mentioned in the first episode, but I, you know, I, I kind of see this whole thing, like, what is it about this environment that, um, or the, you know, the churches in general, that you can have some very positive, but also some very dangerous thing. So what is it about the church that it almost seems conducive to abuse or just some very unhealthy anyway? Well, eventually, after we left, unfortunately, the, not the youth pastor and any of the youth, youth pastors that we knew, but the youth pastor that came a couple folks later, um, was sexually inappropriate with, with several students. Some ser- very and serious allegations. That, that really hit close to home for us it because it was like some of this had happened, I think, at, in Costa Rica. We fell in love in Costa Rica on a short-term mission trip with the same church, and so we realized that we had kind of dodged a bullet. There was always, in, in, in evangelicalism at the time, there was always this latent sexuality. I remember there was a book, you know, sex, latent sexuality with the, some of the games – there was a book called Ideas, and it was published by a group in Loveland. I think it was group publishing out of Loveland, Colorado. And they gave youth pastors these little books. Or they sold them to the youth pastors, and they would just have ideas for the fun games that you could play, icebreakers. And one of them said, you should <laughs> fill a, uh, an inflatable kiddie pool with jello and have uh, jello wrestling. I remember that. And it said, but it said, warning. Girls and girls only and guys and guys. We don't want to be inappropriate here. Make sure all the kids bring their bathing suits. And I thought, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and there were, there were things like that. And it wasn't necessarily anyone doing this on purpose, but it did have the payoff, mm-hmm. right? There was a value to me in being kind of shy, being able to be somewhat physical and not, a, not in, a, in a, a... creepy way. Not a creepy way, but being able to be closer to females and being able to meet a whole bunch of them. Mm-hmm. And, and so there, there was that social function that was pretty, pretty positive. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the puzzle of, you know, what about this environment that can be conducive to harmful behaviors or things like just even with our own growing up at a time, you know, that was an important time, even in, in our sexuality. Um, and I remember, I think it was in middle school that, um, they there was this handling your hormones seminar uh, constantly almost every and, study was on 
and I and I sat Sex. there. I sat there in the in the chairs, and the the speaker was talking about masturbation, and I didn't know what masturbation was. So the whole, like most of the whole talk was left like it was lost to me. I, I don't know because there's they a never, few fails. There's a few fails they never on this defined, one. <laughs> they never defined what masturbation was. Now, okay. if if they defined it, then I'd be like, oh, I get what you're saying. So when I finally when it all clicked and I realized what they were talking about, then I was like. Well, what did they say about it? <laughs> you know, like so you I forgot what they said about well, it. Well, I, d- I didn't have anywhere to put it. I didn't right. know what it was. And right. so, but things like that where you got, you know, they, I don't know, they talk about, and I, it probably was better that I didn't hear the advice that they were offering. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know for sure, but back in that day. Um, but there was a focus on sexuality. There was a focus on sexuality. And we're thinking about it all the time. But. A lack of conversation, real conversations when it, about things that really mattered. And a lack of boundaries and a lack of maturity about it. So there was a kind of, um, I think, a, a, a childlikeness to it. I, I see this a lot, and I, I think it's partly, partly part of the problem, where there are people that are not given kind of heart-to-heart, very frank conversations about sex, whether from their parents or f- from church. There's a lot of talk about it, but it's kind of smirky, you know, don't banana with your girlfriend. That's when you like tongue kiss or whatever. So it's like, there's some of that, but, but the inability to have a mature sexuality sometimes leads to things where you're going, Oh no, that's, that was not appropriate. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is a sophomore in high school that doesn't quite realize it's not appropriate. I'm not trying to justify anything, but, but that that's kind of part of it. Mm-hmm. But also then that like just generally appropriate bounds. I remember that, that older dudes, sometimes staff in evangelicalism, uh, in an evangelical camp or whatever, would just come and kind of whack me on the, on the genitals. Mm-hmm. And then they thought that was funny or we, it, we always make fun of the gays and then always everyone's pretending they're, it was, it was like right. a lot of, a lot even, of gay jokes, but also people acting gay and thinking that's funny. Yeah. And, 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 and then this is, I mean, the touchy, this is, way personal for you but even the time when they you were pantsed in front of everybody oh and I, how thanks. traumatic that is well, this was this was about your trauma stacy but thank you <laughs> no i to to maybe oh two weeks ago that that trauma has not really left me because i'm sitting there all the kids and everyone's laughing at me and my pants are down and they were kind of making making fun of me like you don't want your 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 junk made fun of no. by all the kids that you admire and, I, and, and the girls you wanted. And it was probably just more out of embarrassment for everybody in a sense, you know, but you took it very personally and that, yeah. So that stays with you. That kind of stuff stays with you. So what is it about these environments? Until you said it just now, I don't think I realized how much damage that, that did. Yeah. That's very, that was very painful for me. Right. And it was kind of un, unnecessary, you know, because it's, but when you think about body image issues, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Which we're going to get to. It was a cold day, Stacey. Okay. <laughs> we're going to get, we're going to get to body image stuff in a little bit here too. But so basically there's this puzzle that I want to try to figure out. I, I want to put effort and energy into trying to help. And the other thing too, is I care deeply about people. And so I want to help people. I mentioned um, my interest in psychology and why, you know, why do we behave the way we do? Um, you know, how does the mind work? Things like that. So what, what, Puzzle pieces can we put together and help people? And of course, my my heart goes out to those that are experiencing the effects of the wolves um, in in church settings, because um, church really should be a safe place. It really should be the most important safe place that you could go to. Uh, if you you know if you I, I 
I mean, at least I think that that's what, <laughs> it's what it should well, be. Well, it should be sterile like a hospital. If you're going in wounded, you don't need to have more pathogens more, right. in there. And, and you have to recognize, obviously, that the people... We're all, you know, we're all coming in with our own baggage. And so there's that, you know, there's that element, but it should, it should be a safe place. I've, I've, I felt safer in what would seem like, um, more precarious situations, you know, um, mm. even just if, if we've been, you know, s- sleeping, you know, in a, in a tent during a festival or something, um, mm. I really b- totally believe that. The kids and I and, you know, and you, we're all safe there. Um, You're talking about like at a music festival. Yes. You're saying you feel safer at a crazy hippie music festival with the kids sleeping in the tent by themselves than then you would at church sometimes. sending them to a church camp. Sometimes. Sometimes. Oh, yeah. I remember one time, one time I, I sent one of, one of the kids to a to sixth grade camp or something with the church. And I, I, I slipped a phone in the backpack and the, the youth leader said, you know, you're not allowed to bring phones on this. I said, I understand the, the sentiment, but uh, he, he's just going to keep it in the backpack in case he needs to send an SOS. Because, right. you know, I, I, and I'm not making light of this. What I think is what, what's really hard to, to, to fathom is that you're saying that there were some things that were uncomfortable. There were some ways in which it could have affected the way you thought about sexuality and other things in life, maybe some legalism. But we got off real easy. Right. You know, and there were still ways in which we couldn't fully be in charge. Like, you know those things with the, the titty twisters? <laughs> yeah. I don't well, that really, that I don't, happened to all the guys. Yeah, well, I just don't, I don't think that should be necessary. No. I don't think I should have to worry. I really want to go to church. I want to learn about Roman. This is like late 80s, so I don't know, man. It was weird times. But, but, but I, I remember I had like scarring. And my, one of my nipples, just from the kind of like the hazing kind of games, kind of more of like a jock kind of mentality, you for, know. For doing the titty twist. What I'm saying is this is nothing. And I couldn't stop it. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I couldn't, um, I couldn't find a way to gain power over the older kids or the staff people who were representatives in a sense of, of what was going on. And really, I'm not complaining like it was like some big deal. I'm saying I realized how powerless I felt as a sophomore in high school or junior in high school, say, to be able to say, hey, no, I don't like this behavior. What about other behaviors? It, mm-hmm. it just seems like it's a very, very precarious spot. So that's the first thing you want to figure out. Why is that? Why is the church not a safer place? Well, and I kind of actually mentioned all three. So the puzzle part, why is it not safer? And then I really care about people and I really want to help. Um, And then I have a particular interest in wanting to help in this regard with the church setting, because that's, that's the background. That's what we've known, what we've come out of as Mm -hmm. well as um, I, I mean, I I believe that the message is beautiful. Um, And well, it depends on which message. Well, yeah. Last week we talked about how sometimes there's a hostile t- takeover of the of the message. No, I'm talking about what the message, the, message, the, <laughs> the gospel. Yeah. Um. Uh. What what Jesus says. Um. Mm. I do believe that there's beauty in that, and that things it gets distorted, right? Mm. And so, trying to help people that are in the midst of that, that um, you know, that need some sort of safety net or some, and then, and how do we? And then going about trying to help educate people into new ways of thinking about how we are going to teach religion. Um, Because if we haven't said it before, we're not primarily going to just be harping on 
churches. Issues of abuse. We're not just going to every week come at you with some other horrific tale. We will address them when we need to address them. Our main goal is to figure out when we see something going on, how can we learn from it so that we can figure out what went wrong with the system here? What mm-hmm. went wrong with the way we thought about power and, and privilege and, and, and the roles of people within churches? And how do, we, how do we think ourselves in ways that are more empowering, life-giving, and uh, especially for young people and people who are vulnerable, how can we give them the, the intellectual and emotional tools to, uh, to outfox the naughty stuff? Mm-hmm. Not that they should have to, but to the extent that you're going to be in these situations, these are really important ways to train ourselves and others. One of the things that we say at the end of the show um, that that's very important to me is peace upon peace. Peace is something that the church often advertises, but I've found it difficult for me to find it. Uh, I feel like as, as I got older and my hormones kind of got crazier that actually I found less peace as I was getting older. And I'm like, is this it? Is this all there is? Um, one thing that has helped me through some of that is uh, exploring yoga. <laughs> so wait, I want to stop there and say, so you didn't find peace as much as you would liked to in your mid forties mm-hmm. through the church. Like you, you were on, you're saying you're on this quest for a kind of peace, but what do you mean by peace? Uh, yeah, that's interesting because um, I feel like while, um, sorry, growing up in, in sort of the circles that I did, that there was a m- big emphasis on knowledge and the brain um, and also being female, um, very aware of like I, that I have these feelings that I have <laughs> emotions, PMS, whatever, but I'm not able, like, I, I always thought that they got in the way of the mind and got in the way of what really matters. Right. Um, and so I kind of learned how to wall off feelings and maybe even when situations weren't quite that right, um, even within the church or whatever, I think it was a, a defense mechanism to build these walls and to sort of shut off feeling and just focus on the mind. And so then the very, our version was a very cognitive form of Christianity. There's others, there's, you know, charismatic Pentecostal types or Eastern Orthodox, you know, and not only that, life. but I've also was told that meditation was bad um, or, and, and not to trust your feelings. Right. Or your intuitions. No, you as a female, with those hormones you mentioned, you're, you're hysterical. You're bringing the madness. So to the I'm thing. like, I'm praying, <laughs> take this away from me. God. Take, take what? <laughs> take all these, this craziness, this madness, these, mm. the, you know, like, um, sometimes I felt out of control over my own, uh, like my, my own, like hormones or emotions, you know? Um, and it, I, I was, it just didn't, it wouldn't go away. So, so is that the only kind of peace? Just like you're talking about just e- emotional, uh, temperamental peace? No, I'm talking about a peace that you're able to feel like that everything is okay with the universe, that everything is, it's, it's, it's all going to be okay. It's mm. the tagline for virtue in the wasteland. Everything's yeah, going to be okay. You, you know, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to actually feel it. Is, does this, are you thinking more in terms of like this world versus the next life? No, I'm talking about in, in this world. We are promised all sorts of things in heaven and everything is going to be all made right, right? And, but Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is here at hand. 
it's here now. And looking around sometimes I was having, I was hard pressed to find it. And you didn't see a lot of people that seemed to really have it. No. Um, there's a few individuals that, you know, that I've met throughout my lifetime. And I'm like, oh, this person just exudes this, mm. the gospel, this love, this peace, this, like, you know, they just, and I wanted that, you know. Um, We've met our share of Christian saints. Yes. Uh, right. And then, and, and so you see that that's, it's possible. What am I missing? There have been people in church history that have also experienced this, but our form was very much about going into a room, talking, 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 and then leaving the room. And almost the idea that you had even the right to peace was questionable, right? So maybe you can't be promised a certain kind of spiritual, emotional peace, but, all right, fine, try it if you want. It was almost like there were, there were ways in which the form of Christianity we knew as kids was trying to cut you off at the pass from other types of peace, maybe, maybe associated more with like a, a, a Christian mysticism or something, you know, or, or you, you mentioned meditation. Mm-hmm. I mean, meditation where you, you, you pray into a, a, a demon. <laughs> no. no. But you needed to quiet that, it's, that it's, noggin. It's, it's quieting my thinking so that I can enjoy the stillness and the beauty of what God has created here for us to enjoy here. The gift right here, this beautiful blessing right now. And we were not really told that we were allowed to really appreciate that. Right. Or at least that's that message didn't get across. Well, the only way I know that I'm able to ever feel moments of that is when I do quiet my mind and get often get out in nature. Um, and then yoga has also been a way that has helped me with this, but being able to just, again, quiet all those crazy thoughts that, you know, I, I have all these to-do lists in my head all the time. Catastrophes (laughs) in the brain. You know, um, or maybe I'm like fixated on, on the person that just cut me off (laughs) when I was driving on the road, you know, um, and because that's one of the one you of got my a little temper. My, well, my my pet peeve, definitely, but my pet peeve, my absolute pet peeve is when I'm sitting there waiting my turn, you know, in traffic, how I'm supposed to, and then somebody comes along and just wants to squeeze on in and cut me off. Um, when you can tell full well that they knew that this was that was their plan. Their plan was to get ahead of the rest, and and so. That just can get to my core if I let it, you know? And and yoga has taught me to breathe through that and to, to let it go. Do Otherwise, you worship Ganesha? No. <laughs> no. You don't, even do, you don't even do much om chanting. No. Like that, that, that would be the thing that I'd, I'd get into because if you've ever done it, it just kind of vibrates your, 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 uh, the your top head. of your head. It's a kind of a nice like, mm, you know, it's like, but you, it's kind of embarrassing in, in the West, you know, oh, there's that, you know, wacky person doing that. You can't really. Well, and I'm also tone deaf or, you know, I just, I can't carry a tune. So having <laughs> to like. You need one note. <laughs> <laughs> I still, but anyway. like. But you got into yoga. How'd you get into yoga? <laughs> you, you heretic, you pagan. I you, know, I know. You, well, uh, syncretist. So, and actually, as you well know, um, you um, like almost like dragged me kicking and screaming. You're, it is I my think fault. you were like something. We got to find help for for her. Um, you well, know, for me. Yeah, <laughs> I wanted oh, to peace. just sit and lay on my back in the dark and and have permission to do that. And I tried it 
I think I did it before you did. You did. Um, and I, I, I sat outside well, in the parking lot and waited. Yeah. But I did go in at the end. You encouraged me so to just come. Just come inside here. Just come inside. Said so it wasn't as crazy. Now, by the way, we will have a full show on the dangers of yoga right now in the news. I just tweeted out uh, something where um, the the guy who, uh, the Bikram yoga mm-hmm. guru uh, has been a bad, bad dude. And this has been going on, the, the Rajneeshis. Yoga has been associated with these gurus that are uh, terribly bad. I mean, they're like the, the epitome over the last 30 years of the charlatans and the, and the bad actors. So any good thing can be corrupted. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Now, the reason I think, by the way, to give you a preview of that show that we'll do in the future is partly that these techniques are actually pretty simple and they work. The techniques of breathing and shutting up for a second. Mm-hmm. It's common to the Eastern traditions. It's common to Islam, uh, specifically forms of Sufi Islam and certainly Christian um, practice. Not so much in the Protestant world. That's part of it. But certainly in Catholic circles, Eastern Orthodox circles, and, and increasingly uh, in, in Protestant circles, a little bit of silence. Because Protestants especially tend to be pretty verbal and cognitive, as, as you say. Mm-hmm. Even when our worship is, is very effective, the, the ideas are really the centerpiece in most cases. Mm-hmm. And so you, you ended up, there was a member at one time, when you say kicking and screaming, yeah, we'd get in fights. Like it seemed like you were going to sabotage our ability to get there on time. Yeah, I, you know, yeah, waiting too long to get ready, then, you know, and of course, it took me longer to find my stuff and get, you know, whatever. So getting me out the door was difficult. And then one thing that if you, I mean, there are people that do walk into late, uh, late into yoga classes, but that is definitely not a practice that I know that you appreciate because we want, and, and nor do I. I don't mind it so much. I don't like being that guy. You don't want to be that guy. I mean, you don't want to throw off getting everybody else into their flow. But also, the other hard part is you want to be able to pick your spot, feel comfortable, not rushed that you've got, you know, you've got all your different, um, you know, your your blankets or blocks or whatever that you need, all the equipment. And so you want to get settled, right? Mm-hmm. Um and when you're walking in late, you're usually just kind of trying to squeeze in between people and stuff, which is not the way to start out trying to be relaxed. <laughs> now, you talked about this at one of my graduate uh, world religions classes, and we talked about kind of Christianity, other world religions, and yoga. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think that we came to that was important is that there might be certain contexts where it would be um, not appropriate. I could imagine not appropriate, right? Like if you were saying I'm converting to a different faith, mm-hmm. like let's say Christianity from Hinduism, and you were not practicing something because of its association in your mind and in others with something else. The example we gave, uh, the example I gave was in the um, Eucharistic, that is the uh, communion practice in Scotland, they don't... Uh, after the Reformation, they didn't kneel um, for communion. And the, the idea was that that was a sign that uh, you were essentially worshiping the physical body of Christ that was mm. now present. Like in the old Catholic scene, you are witnessing the, the turning of the bread into the body of Christ, and now you're worshiping the bread. And the Scottish Presbyterians thought this was kind of superstitious and idolatrous. One of the things that uh, Theodore Beza wrote to some of the theologians. Theodore Beza was in Geneva, Genevan uh, right-hand man of John Calvin. One of the things he said to the 
um, to the Scottish guys was that they were probably right not to kneel. But he said that at some time, it might be totally possible that that would symbolize in people's minds a respect for what was happening. And so it wouldn't be worship or idolatry or symbolism, right? So I, we're not trying to sell you, dear no. listener, on getting into this. I, I will say this, though. I am, personally, Jeff is, trying to sell you on finding something in your life what is that it? can do that. Mm-hmm. So it, it could be something within um, your, your church tradition. It could be uh, chanting the Psalms. Mm-hmm. It could be... Um, like a compline service on, a, on an evening uh, in an, an Episcopal kind of style. It could be, um, I, I used to make fun of it even, but uh, like, like Taizé, uh, prayer labyrinths. These are things that are associated with the Christian Western tradition. If that's comfortable for you, taking walks, mm-hmm. swimming in the ocean, but taking those times to get out of your phone and your, in your daily life and all those panicking things and, and breathe for a second. Mm-hmm. And that has helped you because. Yeah, well, you, and, and at least where, and, and where I go, um, yoga is not a religion. Um, and I think that's an important, it's piece. a lot of soccer moms. <laughs> I think the bigger problem is I wish it was a little bit more spiritual in the sense that a lot of the people there to burn their abs, not everybody, but that's some people are going for that. And some and would argue that, that yoga is a philosophy. It's not right. a religion. Um, we any, don't talk about all of this. Anything could be made into a religion though. Um, and, and it, and it could become harmful. And before you, we get to that right. episode on yoga, it is true that various aspects of yoga do come out of, um, uh, both Chinese and Indian and, and Sikh um, mm-hmm. versions of uh, spiritual practices. There, there's so many different types. So you've got to be very discerning there as you would in right. a Christian denomination. But what did you learn? What so what I things? found, yeah, what I found about yoga was that it offered um, a way for me to feel that, that mind and body connection. Um, I am able to then listen to my body because when in yoga, what you're supposed to do is, first of all, one is, I I was terrified because I was I was worried about what am I going to wear, um, how will I look in that outfit? You know, will everybody be judging me for how I look or how uh, out of shape I am for even being? Can I can I do all the moves? Can I do all the postures? And and you know, and what if I can't? Um, you know, will will I be judged for that? And that's what most people think. I'm not limber enough. I don't have the right body. Right. And what I learned through yoga was one, you come exactly how you are. And that is exactly where you should be at that moment. And and you can accept that. And then you listen to your body so that, I mean, the number one people, the number one way, the a number one way that people do get injured in yoga is by not listening to their body and pressing their, themselves too far to try to get into the perfect expression of a posture. And when you're doing that, your body's not ready for it. And, and the, the best thing to do is when you just feel the, you, you push yourself, but only a little bit. And then when you can keep gradually working on that, then before you know it, you've worked yourself into a headstand or, you know, and, or and being able to touch your toes. Um, but you have to be comfortable with exactly where you are at, at that moment. Um, and nobody is looking around the room, looking to see if one, you're doing it right Two, exactly where you're at. It's not the point of yoga. Most of the time, um, I mean, depending, you either kind of like having more of a soft gaze or, in, and then sometimes closing your eyes, My depending eyes are on very <laughs> often closed, yeah. mine are too. But when you're doing some of the, the more like, you know, 
rigorous vinyasas or things like that. I mean, obviously you, you're going to, you know, keep with the movement and stuff, but it's, it is more, you're, you're not relying on your eyes, right? You're listening to the directions of the instructor. And then again, you're feeling your body to see, you know, where, where you should be at. Now, I realized that th- it was a great place for, for just healing with my own body image issues um, mm-hmm. that I, I wasn't going to be judged for. I find you beautiful, but you are terrified <laughs> of your own body in public. And you know what I'm saying? I mean, you had been. Right. And, you know, whether, I mean, I internalized a lot of things, especially as a teenager growing up, but I did have some family members that were, uh, you know, a little bit like they themselves put pressure on themselves for their own body image. So they'd make comments. And they'd make comments and, and then have, you know, you could sort of realize that there was expectations on me too for how to look. And so... I could kind of tell by what I was being complimented on or not, or not yeah. you know, so these things if, can be very subtle, you know, and sometimes I was pretty unhealthy and I wasn't eating right or whatever. And I would lose a lot of weight and I would get compliments. Or if I was actually eating healthy and maybe gaining a little more weight, I might've gotten a compliment on my earrings, <laughs> you know? Right, right. So I, I intuitively, I mean, I, I, I picked up on all of that. I knew, you know, that I was either making the grade or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so for, you know, I just, so I was always very self-conscious mm. about my body. Um, Ironically, after we did this, we both experienced some weight loss, <laughs> but in a really appropriate way. And I think the way for me was, uh, most people don't realize you don't burn a lot of calories in yoga. At least there are many forms. Like I'm very, uh, very much more of a fan of yin, which is much more like the stretching and, um, it, it's more meditative. Mm-hmm. I love the stretches. Um, but the, uh, the other stuff is great too. But even at its most rigorous, what really is, is happening is by getting in touch with your body. Mm-hmm. You, at least for me, I started to realize what I was eating. So I was asking myself, am I eating this because I'm stressed? Because I'm self-destructive? because I'm shameful, I'm loathing myself, or am I eating this as like joy and gift? And all of a sudden, I started loving radishes, mm-hmm. just, just fresh raw radishes, pile that up on a fish taco. But my point is, is that I felt the gift of the radish, right? as opposed to just like this, that constant bacon, mac and cheese. It's just, I'm just well, and if, drowning my sorrows. And if you've ever just eaten a And bite, I love bacon, ra- the right. bacon and the mac and cheese, babe, if you want to make that after. Yeah, so- I'm going to make the dinner, stop it. But if you, if you go, if you eat some bacon and mac and cheese and then go try to do yoga, you'll notice it. You'll notice it. Your body will tell you. When you're I lost 30 attention. pounds after we started yoga. Wow. And I mean, it was, it was, I didn't even think about it. No. Right. And so that was what yoga taught me to listen to my body. So, you know, and, and when you go through and you're, you know, you're relaxing all of the parts, sometimes I would realize how much tension I was carrying in my shoulders and you know, then the, they, you know, you're supposed to relax your shoulders and you're, you're breathing and you're breathing through it, you know, and you're taking these deep breaths and letting, you know, your body deeper and deeper relax. And, and you kind of look to see, you kind of do an internal investigation of where am I holding, you know, uh, holding strong and like tensing up. Right. Mm. And, and sometimes it's just even the tongue on the back of your throat, you know, um, sometimes your shoulders are on the back of your throat. Like on the, uh, the oh, roof of your mouth? The, I, okay, the roof of your mouth. That's what I mean. Like, kind of like 
I don't know, you can tense up like sometimes mm. and like, you know, not just relax your tongue. You You're know, just starting to notice your jaw, yeah. you know. Anyway, so by being able to do that inventory um, and learning that process, I found that when I am in, in out in the world, real world, such as that, that driver that just, you know, cut me off, that I all of a sudden I'm like, Wait, take a deep breath. Notice and, your shoulders. And then I notice my shoulders and I relax them and I keep taking deep breaths. And I realize that I'm able to let that go at least a little faster, faster than I used to be able to. You're able to let it go in, but you're also able to do something you weren't able to do in your childhood, which was acknowledge your rage. Yes. That's the other thing too. Ex- accepting that that is real. That is a feeling that I had that this, this person caused this reaction in me. And then, then I can, you know, I notice it and I'm not judging it, but I'm aware of it. And then I can decide like, is this, really what I want to hold, how I want to present myself or how I want to be for the rest of the day. Do I want to let, or the next hour that let me get all angry and worked up and, and then maybe get short with the kids or something. If there's one other little thing that piles on, cause mm-hmm. the real problem was this, you know, this guy that cut me off or gal, you know? Um, and so I'm able again to just notice my reactions to things. And so sometimes I can even be aware that right now I'm really sad. And before, you know, some, cause that'll happen just with hormones, you know, I just, or, you know, who knows? time of the month or yeah. whatever. No, but for reals, like so when I'm PMSing, I can just like all of a sudden get really sad. When I was stuck with just sort of with my mind, I would have to find a way to rationalize or reason for why am I sad? So I would look around me and what, what do I have that would be making me sad? And I, me, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> well, if I'm close by, it can't be. Yeah. And well, so because I'm close by, I mean, that's the point, right? That if there is something that maybe was slightly off that would, I wouldn't have noticed before all of a sudden now I'm attributing that to my sadness. And I realized that no, sometimes I, there's not really a real reason. It's just what my body is is doing right now, and that's okay. And then, you know, then it mm-hmm. it doesn't have to sabotage mm-hmm. the rest of my day. It's also helped our relationship in that sometimes um, when I would get uh, overwhelmed with anxiety or or remembrance of some kind of trauma, that I would have my body would shake, mm-hmm. and still occasionally can. In some ways, we'll talk about this at the the next segment you could have interpreted that as, and you did sometimes interpret it as almost something you need to be defensive about. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. That I did something wrong that caused this in you. Because you did do, you might've done something. You might've said something that triggered something that made me shake, but it doesn't make you a bad person. Right. And so you, through yoga, were able to say, oh, okay, let's separate out. I'm not maybe angry at Jeff right now, but Jeff thinks that he's, he's getting certain kind of stimuli that make right. him think that he's being yelled at. And now he's responding like a five-year-old kid scared. You've never hit me, right. but I'm cowering as if I might be right. And so by just acknowledging that that's what's going on in my body, my body is doing this mm-hmm. and me acknowledging in my body, then the two things happen. One, you don't, this doesn't have to become a catastrophe for our relationship. Right. It's serious, but I can say my body is remembering traumas and I know rationally that I don't need to, I don't need to agree with it. And my brain's going to tell my body it's okay. And I can notice that this is how you're reacting, and I can come over to you and say, 
don't worry, everything's okay. You right. obviously are picking up on the fact that I'm, you know, agitated or something mm -hmm. about something, but it has nothing to do with you. And it's not, you know, no worries. Everything is okay, right? Mm -hmm. And but I really need that. I don't need you to defend whatever you said. Right? Does that make sense? Right. Because uh, sometimes you're like, context. yeah, yeah. Why are you interpreting it this way? All that. But and I and I do want. And then if you get louder about it, then I'm going to shake more. And so like that. That was the pattern. I mean, really, we've had tough, tough times. Even when we, at an intellectual level, our relationship was on the right track. Some of these ways, our bodies were reacting. Mm -hmm. physiological stuff it was, was totally getting in our way. And it was it, it, it kind of a, does. a trigger to each other that was causing this loop. Yes. Um, and that it's hard to sort of break that cycle. And like you said, it still does. So I don't want to pretend like everything is all roses because we still have our moments, right? And I still have my moments. Um, it's, it's all, it's a, it's a process, but I feel like I have tools now that can help me at least understand. We at least have a language for this, it. So yes. the last time this happened... Then the next day, we kind of recognized, I think, we never really talked about it, mm -hmm. <laughs> but the next day, it was like, all right, there were these stressors in our lives that caused us this kind of anxiety to give off these signals that would then create this trigger in the other person, and then it, it's reciprocal, and it bounces back in this kind of like feedback mm -hmm. in a microphone. But by knowing that, at the moment, we really can't, it was, I don't think there's a lot to be done about it in the moment, but at least it doesn't have to be a three or four day problem <laughs> because we can say then after a good night rest all right i kind of know there are all these other factors going on sleeplessness whatever yeah and that's not the kind of stuff that we we talked a lot about not thinking about sex <laughs> but those other kind of relational strategies i wish we would have you know i wish we would have had a little bit more of mm -hmm. as part of the because the and that's one of the reasons i wrote that book um sexy you can Buy it on Amazon, Sexy, The Quest for Erotic Virtue in Perplexing Times. I think I've, you know, if I would have written it today, it would have been different in mm -hmm. a way. But one of the things I did there was I was just laying the groundwork, the basic kind of what is romance and how come Christian romance has been so tweaked in the way it's been taught to kids? Mm -hmm. And is there a beautiful thing behind it? Just as an example, monogamy could be seen as a rule that constrains you and makes you feel right. claustrophobic. Right. Or it could be the most romantic kink in the world that says, baby, I'm going to love you to, to the moon and back. Just you and me? Yeah. And so the reason, the reason that has anything to do with Christianity isn't because Christians are like better than anybody. It's because we're not judging people. We're not transactional in our love. Um, right. We love the whole world unconditionally. There may come a time when you are just causing so much pain to somebody else and they're causing so much pain to you that it might be physically unhealthy to you and to the kids. Certainly, we'll talk about at another time abusive situations. Right. But so it's not a it's not a law in a sense to to hinder you from joy. Right. It's to to recenter you on what love is. Anyway, that was what it's I was to trying to ask in that and, and what that is, that beauty that that is that you have with another person. Right? And what I say in the, the basic thesis of that book is partly related to this thing that we're talking about with yoga is if you can get yourself emotionally, spiritually, and mentally in the right place, it makes your sexuality a lot healthier. Right. A lot less destructive. You're going to be in better relationships. Well, and I'm, if I'm sitting here having body image issues, I mean, think of how that's going to affect our sex life. But if you understand that you are all right with the universe, then there's nothing that some dude down the street thinks or your aunt, your aunts are fine, but I mean, your, if your aunt judged your body, right. 
you would say, well, that's fine, but what do I care? Yeah, I don't, I don't need, I don't need their, that. I don't need their I have acceptance. the whole universe. Yeah. I have the love of the whole universe. What the angels, archangels, and all the company of heaven worship my beautiful, I had baby's body. Right. You know? Right. Um, and and uh, once you get that, it makes the sex life easier. It makes all the other stuff easier. Right. So wh- back to one side note about yoga too, just yep. to make sure, um, is that for any of you that are wondering, maybe wanting to try it, um, there's always a thing called child's pose that no matter what, if you ever feel like, you know, you've been pushed too far or you're not comfortable with something or, you know, or, or a certain pose hurts you or whatever, you just go into child's pose and you can rest on your mat. And even there are some people that will be in child's pose the entire time. For some reason, they end up, you know, getting that space. They kind of, you know, start to get emotional and then they just literally like, will just sit there and and use the rest of the space just to again like you know breathe and and not have to face that world out there for just that mm-hmm. hour if if or, you know or hour and it's a half. one of the greatest things that yo- good yoga teachers will do and that'll say you don't have to do all these things the moment you're overwhelmed just get into child's pose i've seen women and men uh, start crying and walking out because they're finally able to get with their thoughts and sometimes it's too much and yeah. and um and sometimes that can happen but sometimes that's good yeah do you remember what what the the, the episcopal priest uh, sarah condon said at the uh, the com- conference we were at in new york well i know that she tried uh, shavasana which is like the the final pose and they call it um the corpse pose the corpse pose sometimes i mean the dead man's pose is a little bit less um, i like no, corpse pose corpse pose but um that is Dead man is too gender <laughs> exclusive. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. For from eighty percent of the women are in there are women. Yeah, eighty no. <laughs> so percent corp- of the people in there are women. But yeah, the corpse pose. Um, and what I describe it. So what I what is interesting about that pose? Describe what the pose is. Please. Yes. So you're laying down on your mat, and on your back, on your back, um, and you are like your eyes are closed. And it is just a time where there's no talking. Um, there could be some light music or, you know, there might be sound bowls or whatever, depending on the class. Um, but it is literally just a time where it, meditation um, or your or the silence, you know, whatever you need at that moment. But there's just complete silence. And it is it. It is in those times and what Sarah had mentioned, she she doesn't, you know, buy the whole yoga thing, but she wanted, she was trying the Shavasana. Thing. So she just did the, that part. <laughs> just that part. Which is really, I thought that was great advice because really that's what you just need to do. You just put Lay the dishes down, down for a second. And put everything aside for a yeah. second and catch your breath, you know. Yeah. And, and it was in those moments where she found inspiration for her top that I'm, she had. I'm pretty sure since it was a plenary as well, I think you could go to Mockingbird uh ministries just google mockingbird and david zoll and you'll find the main mockingbird page or maybe you could go sarah condon and mockingbird and we'll also include in the show notes if you go to the mockingbird website uh, that's the organization that's run by david zoll and you go to the mockingbird conference uh, videos i'm pretty sure they'll have that up and that is sarah condon describing what she learned what insights she had in in this process, even mm-hmm. though she was kind of skeptical about yoga as such. Mm-hmm. And what I've had one of my yoga instructors um, mention to me is that you're laying there on your back and you're leaving behind anything that just no longer serves you, like or you know if it's you're unhealthy. Dying to it. Yeah, you're you're letting it go, 
and then you turn over on your side after, you know, and then it usually is like five to seven minutes long that you do that. And then you turn over on your side. Um, You're on your back for seven minutes. Yes. Sorry. And you turn over on your side and then and you're in like sort of the fetal position and and it's kind of like a rebirth mm-hmm. after that. And so then and then after you gradually, you know, you come up and sit on your your mat and then that's when they end class. And and so it's 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 kind of like the die you know, dying and being reborn mm-hmm. again. That daily repentance. Where you can yeah, the daily repentance where you can focus on you know, something positive for the day and let go of whatever was troubling you. I don't think until, and this is weird because I don't feel like it's anybody else's fault, might be my fault, but I personally did not really pray seriously for the long periods of time where I wasn't just doing it for a show or something I was supposed to do until I had those moments in yoga. I really have had very sincere prayer. Me too. In that, in that kind of context. Again, not an advertisement per se, but it's the sort of thing that you really need to get in your life. And more importantly, this is a way for you to kind of understand where Stacy's at these days. Yeah, well, and and, and what it she's was, up to this way. And you, it was through this yes. yoga instructor. And it was through this process that I learned about the difference between discernment and judgment. I before was even judging my own self and my own body, um, and so when. I had a pain or something. I would almost like, you know, like I mentioned before, I'd kind of fight it or whatever. Or get mad at it. <laughs> You're like, like, why is this happening? Why is my foot hurting right now? You know, why does my knee hurt? And and rather that and say, oh, wow, this, you know, I, what have I done that I might have hurt my knee? Or, um, and then have like compassion, recognize this is pain. Um, and this, this will pass, you know? Um, and so it's, it's not denying the pain. It's acknowledging it. And as um, and, and then you can move forward. So as we um, kind of mentioned sort of a definition of discernment versus judgment. That's a huge theme for our show it and is. our project. So judgment is condemnation with contempt. Mm-hmm. Discernment, on the other hand, is a radical honesty, but with deep compassion. Mm. And I think we are... Sometimes we're we're afraid, well, we see the unhealthy aspects of judgment, so then we think that we shouldn't discern mm-hmm. because we we don't know the difference. And this is where it loops back to our main concern on the show with the wolves. Right. When you see the wolf, it's in your best interest to discern. Yes. That's a wolf. Right. And I have deep compassion that it's hungry and I look yummy. <laughs> right. But that's what's going on here mm-hmm. versus you naughty thing. Like right. this disgust- is terrible. Right. Like leave me alone. You know, like <laughs> now, if you're dealing with an abuser, like just feel free to just, just whatever dis- have disgust for them. I, I'm, but we're talking about the way in which sometimes under the guise of forgiveness or don't judge, we say, well, this leader kind of lied about, you know, they plagiarized or this leader was, um, you know, creepy, or this leader was taking money in an inappropriate way. But don't judge. Let's we'll forgive and forget, right? Right. That's not what this is about. No. That that would be, and it's that mentality, yeah. or anybody saying that you 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 need to forgive me. If you're a Christian, you need to forgive yeah. me. <laughs> like, no. or the church saying, "Hey, why don't we forgive this church worker or this elder or something just to make the problems go away?" That's where a lot of this unhealthiness comes from. Right. And even in ourselves. So in ourselves, we get 
very contemptuous of ourselves and, and shameful and disgusted with ourselves. And that's very unhealthy. But discernment with compassion. Then you recognize, okay, my, my belly is not where I want it right now. I talk too much. You know, whatever it is. And, and so what are we going to do about that? You know, yeah. it, also, you know, you can, you can reflect on, you know, how you got there, why yeah. that is the case. And, and, and that, you know, and then have that compassion and even learn to forgive yourself and learn to forgive other people. Not that you have to, I mean, really like we can, we'll have to do another show on forgiveness in another time, but um, forgiveness is more for you <laughs> than mm. it is for the other person, I think right. in a lot of ways. But it's that important concept where we are afraid of judgment, and so we also throw uh, discernment, like the baby out with the bathwater, mm-hmm. and we don't we are we we are afraid to exercise uh, discernment. Now, after the break, we're now going to go even deeper. Um, if you join us into research that Stacy is going to walk us through on how this inability for religious communities to exercise discernment has been a major component to the problems we've seen over the last um, long, long while, uh, but certainly that, that's been more recently in the news of abuse of various forms within the churches. That is, there are psychological, specifically social psychological reasons why people refuse to address and to report very serious um, bad behavior within religious communities. So we're going to look at that research when we get right back. Thanks for being with us. We got lots more in store. So Stacy, what um, what do you got for us? Yeah, so there's a couple things that um, one one important thing to mention when when we're dealing with uh, you know the the idea behind discernment versus judgment when somebody comes to you with something, especially those of you educators um, and parents, and uh, your child comes, and even if it comes, you know, yeah, if it comes even in the form of judgment or whatever they're trying to tell you. Anger, yelling. (laughs) Right. It's very important as the educator to not get defensive. And again, to look on even that with compassion and figure out, is there truth to this? And then if so, what can be done? Um, and if there's not truth to it, then what's going on with this person Right. that, that this is a problem? Those are the healthy ways to deal with somebody who's raising a, a, an issue. There's somebody sounding an alarm. The number one thing I've seen in, in church and uh, university settings is that when there's a person who says some, somebody's acted in an inappropriate way, there's, a, there's somebody doing something abusive. Mm-hmm. Even if people acknowledge that that behavior would be abusive, the, the very first thing I hear a lot of people say is... Well, they did it wrong. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't complain in the right way. Right. I say, yeah. And all the attention then goes to that. Yeah, the way they complained. Why do they do this? Because they're being defensive. And in this case, they're being defensive on behalf of their group, their organization, their own implication in it. Mm-hmm. And that's a real problem. That is not just a real problem. It's probably the chief problem. And John Gottman has done a lot of research in this, and especially with and related to in relation to couples and marriage. He's, marriages. He is definitely, and his institute is the go-to for marriage counseling resources. And the and he mentions that like defensiveness is like a number one killer to relationships, right? Um, and, but John Gottman's concept of defensiveness is this. 
Defensiveness, which is defined as self-protection in the form of righteous indignation or innocent victimhood in an attempt to ward off a perceived attack. Many people become defensive when they are being criticized, but the problem is that its perceived effect is blame. It is usually a counterattack to a complaint, which is not criticism. So somebody complains, and then you perceive it as a criticism, mm-hmm. and suddenly you counterattack. And you blame. And we don't do this on purpose, but this is part of the problem. So somebody is being harmed. They complain. It sounds like an attack, so people counterattack. Right. This is constant. I see it all the time. Defense it's, mechanism. And it's horrific. And, mm-hmm. it's, and it's something that leads to the sickness, or at least it allows the sickness to continue to grow. Yeah. And on that note, there are a lot of ways in which, um, you know, people end up, or for a lot of reasons, that people don't report abuse. So that is a general kind of picture of how this dynamic works, where people are defensive and they don't, you know, mm-hmm. uh, report abuse in the church. But but you looked at something that there's that also, actually gives more. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of other reasons. There's a book, Representative Studies on Victimization. There's a chapter by Sarah Fernow titled Sexual Abuse by Catholic Clerics, Patterns of Interpretation and Coping Strategies of Victims in Light of a Religious Socialization. One of the things in the in summary of this chapter that they bring up is that there's a lack of research for uh, both nationally and internationally. That's what we've been finding. As mm-hmm. we're getting ready for this podcast, we're surprised that there aren't more in-depth studies. And, and, and particularly, she's referring to sexual abuse in institutional and Definitely church contexts. Right. A lot of this was, was covered more thoroughly by social services, by elementary schools and that sort of thing. There was, a, there was a time where they realized that they hadn't been able to figure out how to get these reports to the, to the proper channels. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but the church was kind of behind on this, as it, it can be from time to time. And another, another problematic thing that she mentions is that a lot of this is without physical violence. Um, and so physical violence needs to be dropped as a criterion for sexual abuse because there's a lot of like a lot of things going on in this dynamic. It's not always done in, in an aggressively physical manner. It, right. People can be talked into situations and sometimes even the victim can feel like they were an equal party to it. Even though they're in a situation where the, the power differential is such that they're really easily being led along. Correct. Yeah, and, and so again, I think, I think that's, that's very important to focus back on. There was a time, especially in society, society at large used to think of this uh, this way, that the only real sexual violence is something that occurs with the threat of uh, you know, a knife or a gun or, or some kind of uh, physical restraint. And if you didn't have that, if you didn't have bruising or that sort of thing, then, well, maybe you were complicit in it. Maybe, right. maybe you were... Uh, a willing participant. Or even maybe you were seductive, mm-hmm. or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And that... That's a huge piece to this nastiness. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, what were you wearing, right? <laughs> but she's saying that there's something specific, something specific about religious contexts right. that makes this power differen- differential even probably stronger than, you know, teacher and pupil or, or doctor and patient. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that's sometimes mentioned when people are, re- re- you know, kind of making their reports is that almost like there's like a relationship between mm-hmm. the victim and the perpetrator. You're saying this is what the... For the, in the religious setting. In the religious setting, what the perpetrator or the victim says? 
the victim says this, or other people will say there was something going on between you and the pastor. Ah, uh, I see. So the person so who was it, coerced into a sexual, you know, it, it encounter, becomes like a relationship. They were in a relationship. Yes. It was an inappropriate relationship, but it was relationship. Right. I got you. And so it it's not taking into account that power dynamic, like you mentioned. So the the first two things we've been looking at are dynamics related to religious communities that are at least especially common in religious communities. But but then you're saying that there's there's more. She's found more related to these questions of why is it that people don't report abuse even when they see it. Correct. So in this chapter, she lays out five reasons of why people don't report. The first is fear of stigmatization and negative reactions by the family and social milieu and frequently a related fear concerning an, the anticipated loss of affiliation with the church community. There you go. That's a mouthful, but what, what, what do you take that to mean? Yeah, so the idea that this community becomes so much a part of your life, it's really hard to sort of upset that apple cart. Most of the time, that's a real fear. Right, and, and that, if, that was been, if that's been your source of connection and support, like... Yeah. That's, it's emotional. That's it's a, emotional. That's a big deal. Death. Yeah, that's a big deal. There's this quote that she mentions. It says, "This early childhood influence of the church as a socialization institution that also projects into the family is so enduring that it can be seen in most recounted reaction patterns to sexual abuse to this day." The second point is feelings of shame and guilt leading to self-blaming by victims, and mm. that's a huge one. You know, we mentioned a little bit about guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. Somehow, you know, we victims can often feel like they, for some reason, caused this, or this is somehow their fault. Um, because they're sinners. Because they're sinners. and Like God's chastisement or something. Yeah, there's a pretty powerful quote here that she mentions um, from one of the interviewees uh, that was a victim. The interviewee thus carries in his own eyes, on account of the experience of abuse, a mark of guilt and shame that betrays and brands him as a victim. Yet the mark of Cain is not a stigma attributed by people in general or in the victim's social milieu. It is a mark given by God. Mm. There is therefore no escape from the role of the branded individual. The victim speaks of always having to live with this mark of Cain. The interviewee's self-blaming is thus guided by the assumption of having taken upon himself a sin before God. For this reason, the stigma to be carried for that sin manifests itself as just punishment from God for the sexual abuse. Accordingly, his pattern of interpretation displays a role reversal compared with the reality of the abuse situation. The interviewee as victim, makes himself the offender. Yeah. And that's so painful for me to hear. Like this mark, that it's you almost know. like that's the scarlet letter, right? Yeah. Like that the, the God has decided to place on you. The third one, trivialization of the sexual abuse resulting in rejection, respecting denial of the individual's own victim status. So they minimize the abuse thinking that... Um, it really wasn't that bad. Yeah. It hey, well, I mean, yeah, you shouldn't have done that, but it's like, it's not a, it's not murder. And, and this is seen especially, uh, or, 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 you know, it can be anywhere, but a, a large 
percentage of males that um, there's this quote here, especially for some male victims in the sample, self-accusation serves to protect against the feelings of helplessness and powerlessness triggered by the loss of control. It, it, that's how, that's how uh, Richard Dawkins deals with his own life story. He, he just, he says, I don't know why everybody essentially says, I don't know why everybody makes a big deal about this. I was molested. It's just something that happens. You know, who cares? That's everybody. Um, I think Dave Chappelle kind Dave, of, he did. Know. Yeah. In a recent, um, like we heard his comedy. It was a rough comedy. comedy. I, I don't like to we condemn up, comedians, but I couldn't We ended up turning it. that yeah. one off. Yeah. That was but, sad, but that's, that's where he was kind of going with it. And that I think because like, we're so close to these matters that it just wasn't a, comedy special this, I could really handle. This basically handle. happens to everybody, so just get over yeah, it is kind yeah. of that message. And it's yeah. like, mm, no. The fourth finding is legitimation of the incidents of abuse by adopting the offender's interpretation. This quote, many victims continue to carry with them the idea that they, not the priest, are sinners, and they think about the confessional and their predilection to masturbation. One of the things that's always been important to me about our research into all this is that it's not a primarily, it's not just a Protestant idea or a Catholic idea, but there is something about the practice of private confession that, that needs to be treated with a great deal of sensitivity. One of the things, uh, for instance, in my research in the, the Reformation era uh, that, that turns up is that Luther and others noted that they would go into confession and they might say, well, you know, I disobeyed my mom. They'd say, well, yeah, but what about, you know, did you try this? And then the kid would say, well, I've never heard of that. And then they'd go home and try it, right? There was a way in which that conversation about sin, specifically sexual sin, then could lead to these kind of conversations and even behaviors. And in the context of confession, then the person going in sees this person that's a representative of God and thinks to some extent they may have corrupted this person. Right. Another example of how this could play out is basically the offender saying, like, well, you seduced me or you've wanted this or, you know, or there's like, you believe that somehow there was a lust in your heart that created this, right? And there's all sorts of other weird ones. You could even go into Boccaccio's Decameron as uh, stories from the Renaissance where the author Boccaccio describes pilgrims, nuns, young women being coerced into sex by priests by saying things like, well, like I got to get the devil out of you and send the devil back into hell and we're going to use this sexual ritual or something. And you'd think, well, that's really body and weird and not to be read by polite company. And yet there seems to be an indication that Boccaccio would have been reflecting on things that probably people had discussed or described. And uh, we know this is very likely true, given that there are actual accounts of people saying these sorts of things, priests and pastors, using very contorted rationale. So let me give you a, a rational explanation. You can't trust your own judgment. You don't really understand these complicated matters. But I'm the authority. I'm the adult here. I'm the big person. So don't you worry. I understand what's going on here. You don't know as much as I know. You know, so trust me. And then, therefore... When the, when, the, when the victim in, internalizes that interpretation from the authority, what's happening is we're going back to what we were talking about last week, which is we cannot allow people to not trust their own perceptions, not to be critical thinkers. This is where mm -hmm. I think what we're saying, this is where we are interested in coming in. And the fifth point is sacralization of the sexual assault and a religious reevaluation of what happened. Yeah. And that's a very tricky one and hard to really even invent. Did they have any examples? I don't, but um, I thought briefly of Bill Gothard. 
I want to save a full exposition of the atrocity that is in one of his manuals. Uh, Bill Gothard was a guy who had these big conferences on, on youth and all the problems of the youth and, and the, the devil in the music and the long hair, all that stuff. The legalism that I grew up with and you, you grew up with was often something that came to us through this guy, Bill Gothard, who's not that well known now. Um, allegations even for him of, of inappropriate behavior with a minor, by the way. But, um, but, it is Bill Gothard's manual that we'll discuss at some point related to how you should counsel somebody who has raised this um, alarm that they have been sexually uh, abused. And I want to talk about the whole thing because it's just a big old mess. But the one thing that probably fits in with this, to your point, is that he emphasizes, tell the young person to use this as an opportunity to have grand forgiveness, right? Like there's this spiritual opportunity. Also, this is something that's going to make you stronger. So you're going to grow through this. So this is, has been a gift for you. And in all of this, there isn't a way in his, in his materials, isn't a way to get the person some justice or get out of the situation. It's all about how this whole ordeal is a spiritual trial for their ultimate good. It's part of God's providence, so don't really make too much of it. <laughs> that's really where the wickedness, I think, gets yeah. as deep. And because I don't, I think the reason that's the w- most wicked of it is that some of these other f- things, for instance, people not not being willing to come forward because they want to preserve the group, they're not necessarily wicked. They think, well, look, the group is doing so much good in the world. Yeah, and we'll talk about more, yeah, right. a, a little bit more so, of that in the next article. So those are those are okay, not healthy at all and condemnable, but the, the, the real moral wickedness when you get to somebody who is using their spiritual position, this is blasphemy. This is mm-hmm. taking the Lord's name in vain, mm-hmm. where you're saying, this is what God's doing here. And like, no, 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 you are the creeper doing something bad. This isn't God trying to put this poor person through this trial. Now, one of the things that certainly is a very a very real possibility is to start thinking about how one could emerge through trial and become a strong and mature person. Not to say this was a good thing, but to say, I'm going to make good out of uh, this, or I'm going to grow. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think good is the best word, but that is not something that the, that the religious leader or, yeah, it, or it anybody is, else. Or anybody else. Really, it's only it's up to the business. victim. Yeah. It's only up to the yeah. victim to, to yeah. decide that. Yeah. It, it, it does no good to come from anybody else. Well, and it, it does harm. And it it's does harm. cruel. Yes. One last closing thought about this particular article was that um, there are sometimes that the tools of the Catholic faith did provide some healthy coping strategies for some, for some victims. But then the, alternatively, also, there's been a lot of people that were unable to cope. And Mm -hmm. so that then makes us think, okay, well then what about, you know, what about like mandated reporting or more procedures or Mm -hmm. something in place? So if people are afraid to report, then maybe we could try to force it that when anybody else notices it, right, that they would, um, you know, bring it to the attention of authorities. And the next article talks about, you know, should, should we, you know, have mandated reporting? And And I've, and I've read this one too. And and this whole idea of mandated reporting is really, really important to our agenda. It protect your noggin, and it's our agenda because 
it's not just in this context, but in many contexts as an administrator, as, as a college administrator and, and, and the like, that very often in education and in, in, in systems and in, in institutions, people say, all right, we've got a problem. What is the protocol or procedure that we could implement that would allow us to be able to just get this out of the way? Now, those things can be helpful, but the protocols, this is, what, this is what's so great about and important about this article. And Stacey's going to read the title of it. Mm-hmm. It'll be in the show notes. But if you are a, a religious educator, if you are a, a parochial school teacher, a Christian college vice president, I beg you of all the, the stuff that we throw out your way please consider reading this article in particular because what this article does is it brings all of the the literature to bear on this question of what is going on with the system that makes it so that the mandatory reporting isn't enough in fact it it's doesn't not a really fail safe. It, and it doesn't really do that much and right. you're you're going to now show us why that is right it's a journal article titled Reporting Child Sexual Abuse Within Religious Settings, Challenges and Future Directions by Craig Harper and Colin Perkins. And that was in the Child Abuse Review. And this was published uh, in 2018. So it is very new. Pretty recent. Yes. One thing I want to just be absolutely clear on is it defines mandatory reporting is defined as a process that places a legal duty on designated groups of people associated with institutions to report incidents of child abuse. Stacy and I 100% agree that mandatory reporting is a good idea. You should report, you should penalize employees and staff if they don't report something that is obvious or even something that they should report. Right. By, you know, any any adult person. And one thing that the study found was even with the threat of fines up to $10,000 or uh, prison sentences of mm. five years, it didn't really change the reporting, like the, the differences between mandatory reporters reporting and the non-mandatory reporters reporting. As an aside, friends, in ethics, I am a virtue ethicist. And people often don't understand why I talk that way. Rules don't usually work that well. Mm-hmm. And even when people believe in the rules, it doesn't always work that well. Our psychology is pretty complex. And so the only thing that really works is character, integrity. If you can, and I don't even, you know, think it's that easy to, to develop character and integrity, but, but the, the focus of moral education has to be on character and integrity. Because if you just come up with a bunch of legislations or, or policies, or you've got a handbook, if people don't have an intrinsic reason to follow it, they won't follow it, even, as you said, under the, the, the penalties. And on top of that, this article mentions that taking a report of abuse seriously draws institutionally connected onlookers into recognizing publicly that there are flaws in the very institution that supports their own existence. So that's basically saying, if you see, if you're, if you're a member of a community that you're really devoted to and you see something bad, you have a very strong psychological reason not to act on this because to act on it is to say that everything you care about, the thing that you've put your trust in, your time, your money, you've brought 15 friends into the community or whatever, that there's a flaw in it. Yeah, And, and it, that's so hard for people to deal with. And it mentions that it is far less problematic for onlookers to minimize 
or ignore problems of sexual exploitation or to align with the alleged abusers, whether overtly or by default, since this enables them to continue much as before. You want to get comfortable. You just don't want to think about it. Well, and, and if you have to take down a leader, yeah. I mean, who's going to run? <laughs> who's going to run the organization? Right. I yeah. mean, there's all kinds of chaos. And even if it's not the main leader, just causing chaos or exposing that there are flaws or problems with your beloved group is uh, is just hard for people, mm-hmm. especially religious people. Right. Because religious, when I mean, you think about it, I'm religious about this. That means you're really devoted. If you're really devoted, man, that's hard. Basically, in sort of Lutheran lingo here, a theology of glory leads to abuse. Yeah, so, so we've got a heavy steeping in the Lutheran tradition. Martin Luther came up with this, this distinction between theology of glory and theology of the cross. A theology of glory leads to abuse. And a theology of the cross enables and empowers people to be liberated from systems that tolerate abuse. Because a theology of glory is basically about power, triumph, achieving something to get uh, up to God. Whereas a theology of the cross calls a thing what it is. Luther says at one point, a theology of glory calls good evil and evil good. A theology of the cross calls a thing what it is. A theology of the cross isn't afraid to rock the boat when integrity is on the line, when truth is on the line. Most importantly, it's receiving the blessings of God. It's receiving the loving blessings of God, not worrying about looking good. Once you realize you don't have to look good, it's a lot easier to call things as they are. When, when, first of all, when God loves you unconditionally, if that's your belief, this is what Luther thought, if God loves you unconditionally, then you can be honest about your own sins because you have nothing to lose. You're not going to lose God's love. So the same thing is true for other people in the church. If God is forgiving, then fine. We can call other people out right. and they can still work towards redemption and so forth, but that doesn't mean that we ignore this. This if, is the discernment with compassion. But a theology of glory says we're the winners. We're the right ones. You know, like we're like the, the Pharisees that look down on the, the, the sinner next to him and say, I'm glad I'm not like that loser. That's judgment. Yeah. And so once you get into that game, you could think, well, that's just not good spiritually. Judgment's not good spiritually. This business about discernment and judgment is life and death emotionally and psychologically for our people in churches. I agree. The article goes on to explain that there's two important frameworks that can help shed light and, and, and basically kind of explain why maybe there's some problems there with mandatory reporting. The first one is a system justification theory. This asserts that people are implicitly motivated to justify and rationalize the way things are so that existing social, economic, and political arrangements tend to be perceived as fair and legitimate. This is kind of like just world theory, but now it's applied to a group or community. So if you believe that the system is basically just and good, then you have this whole way of thinking Mm -hmm. that can't really even notice when it's off. Right. As well as you have a desire to protect. So there's an example here where um, in a study that they reported a series of studies whereby participants motivation for affirming the status quo were heightened by presenting a fictitious news story written by an outsider depicted as a foreign journalist that criticized the state of American society. So when an outsider is criticizing, we circle the wagons. Yep. And this dear friends is what 
I and Stacy have seen personally over the last couple decades. <laughs> From the sea to shining sea, when the the leader of a religious group or a popular denomination is first accused, everybody rallies to that person. Mm-hmm. They just they just see that well they're being attacked. So they circle the wagons, and then once they get in that mode, this is the hard part. It becomes very difficult for them to eat crow later and say, "Oops, I was I was wrong to back this person." Right. And so they continue to double down, no matter how absurd it gets. They say, well, okay, that's one allegation. Oh, there's two. Okay, three allegations. But then, you know, and, and so you go that far in. When the fifth allegation, sixth allegation happens, now all of a sudden you look kind of stupid, right? And if you don't have the love of right. God that's unconditional and you can't confess— you got to just keep doubling down until it right. just gets silly. Well, and, and they're worried that their whole system is under threat. And, right? usually, and sometimes it is. Some of these churches just go away. And so then they decide to close ranks, is yep. what this article says. Yep. And so one of the things that also this article points out is that these traits tend to be more prevalent within highly religious communities than in the general public samples. It does happen in politics. Well, we see this I mean, all the time. It, and you could even happen in your sports teams, but, right? Or it could happen yeah, in yes. any of your groups. Yeah, but, especially, yeah, like like the the coach or whatever. But yeah, especially in religious groups, this is going yes, on. Yes, yes. And then it can be emphasized, for instance, that any effort to protect the institution instead of the victim will inevitably damage both. And that's, that's my favorite quote. One of the things that's Would you read it important. again? Would you yeah. read it again? That's such an important quote. Any effort to protect the institution instead of the victim will inevitably damage both. You think you're protecting something. You think you're protecting your system. You think you're protecting, you know, by r- rallying against, you know, the somebody. In the, yeah, the invasion. The naysayers, the, the godless haters. But it actually, you'll see it where then your whole, your whole thing loses credibility, right? Yeah. Whatever, whatever you're protecting. It's a hard thing to deal with. But when you get into the situation where the leader of your nonprofit or your, or your school the Monsignor or Pastor Bill at the, you know, Fifth Baptist, you know, megachurch. I don't think any megachurches are called Fifth Baptist. <laughs> but if, if, this, if this comes out, you're going to have a phenomenon where people are going to want to defend the church by hiding and by not being transparent. And that is 100% destructive to your long-term viability. Your group is going to disintegrate. Right, and it's it's because you you lack integrity, credibility. Yeah. Like th- you, you could say it's the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has withstood it not so much. They just had a lot of wiggle room. They had a lot of uh, equity, as as it were. And uh, it's the churches that are the non denominational churches meeting in high school gyms that might die off in a six month period, but the reckoning, the Armageddon's coming, mm-hmm. and there's no good. And what are you thinking? Is not it's going to be bad for you? You're going to feel guilty. You're going to hurt the victims further and you're not going to work towards the restoration of the of the numbskull that got us into this whole problem in the first place so let's move on to the second framework that they mention and that is moral foundations theory mft we're going to do a whole show on this one one day and this asserts that human morality is a multifaceted phenomenon mft again moral foundations theory based on three clear premises first We appear to take a dual process approach to important or contentious decision making. Harper and Harris called this process feel first, 
rationalize later. That is, we have automatic emotional responses to certain stimuli and then rationalize these responses through conscious elaboration. Yeah, this is uh, something you were alluding to earlier on in the show, how sometimes our bodies are having a certain reaction and then we use our minds to justify that reaction. Right, exactly. But here's the problem. Your immediate reaction when somebody makes an accusation against somebody you really think is wonderful and your organization that you really think is wonderful, note what your body's telling you. You don't like that feeling. And since you don't like that feeling, you're going to rationalize a way to get that feeling to go away. Right. And so they mentioned that you have an automatic negative emotional reaction to the perceived threat. Mm-hmm. And that, that's just what, it's just natural. That's yeah. what we do. It's natural and it's, it's spiritually deadly. Yes. So we need to be aware of it and recognize that this is what's going on when that, when something makes you cringe mm-hmm. or makes you want to run from it. Mm-hmm. The only way out of it is to look at head on yeah. and really figure out what is it. Yep. And you're not being a betrayer. You're not being unfaithful. You're just facing honesty. Right. And you, by the way, as a, as a everyday person or a staff person or a teacher, if you can do that, if you could acknowledge that phenomenon within yourself and forgive yourself for having that phenomenon, then you can be the hero in that scenario. The second point is morality is a multidimensional construct and suggests that human morality comprises of six moral foundations. Now... This is some hot stuff these days. Mm -hmm. A lot of the colleagues that I've had at at the university have been reading Jonathan Haidt on uh, uh, on this kind of subject of Mm -hmm. psychology, social psychology, and morality. And we'll go through all of the different moral, the, the six moral functions in a future episode. So what this means for us is that when somebody might be acting out of fairness and, and then somebody else is acting out of loyalty. They've got these different kind of components to what they think morality they value, means. And they value, mm-hmm. one person values the fairness higher, another person values, you know, caring higher, mm-hmm. loyalty is another one. And so you have these competing, if you will, or at least different views on what should be held first and foremost. Right. So in the context of like a church, I, I find myself in this boat. I will look at people who are overly willing to believe in the holiness of the leader who's being accused of embezzling and think you're a bad person. You're an immoral person for not standing up and pushing against this. And perhaps I'm right, but in the context of this theory, what, what's going on is that this person is probably privileging loyalty which is something we care about. I mean, you know, loyalty is good. They're putting loyalty above caring. And I tend to, and you tend to have more of a predisposition to say, we need to be caring for the students or the old lady who's giving her retirement paycheck to, to this televangelist. Right. That's our primary concern. And so, so when we then are flippant and um, con- condemning the the televangelist people think that we're just being irreverent or you know like we're we're not being faithful to the community of the christian family or something right Right. now i really think they're wrong i don't just think they're wrong i i think i really think that over the course of this this season we're going to start to go through why it really is morally obligatory that is that you have no choice if you're a person of integrity but to do those hard things to step in and be the good guy. 
when somebody's been when, when, harmed. Yeah, somebody's or... been harmed. That care should always come over the institution because loyalty to the institution is is useless if the institution is just crushing people. Right. Kill, destroy, burn it down like like uh, Yoda and Luke Skywalker. If the if the Jedi keep becoming Sith, then maybe stop the the whole Jedi system. Well, and there's a lot of countries people don't want to live in because <laughs> their leaders are not taking care of their people. Yeah. So you know? what's the point? Is it all just for the dude sitting on the throne? Or is the dude sitting on the throne or the lady or maybe a parliament? Oh, we're getting off track. But you get the point. The government is supposed to be serving the people, the people in, a, in a healthy kind of state. Yeah. And the third premise of MFT is that the relative importance of each moral foundation differs within each individual, giving everybody a distinct and ideographic moral composition. Well, we just jumped ahead then, because the first part is just saying that there are multiple parts, and then this one is saying that these multiple foundations of morality are different in different people. These next two quotes that I'm going to read to you basically explain our very existence, the whole reason why we're doing this podcast. Mm. Let me start with the first one. It says, we suggest that embedding the principles of MFT within communication and safeguarding training in religious settings has the potential to develop people's understanding of current reporting practices and subsequently to improve such behaviors. We argue that non-reporting practices in these settings have their genesis in deep-rooted psychological processes, and understanding these processes offers a potentially useful way to shape communication both within and outside of religious institutions in order to facilitate better reporting practices. We're not the only ones that need to be sharing it. You need to be sharing it. We, we don't we don't want to be the only ones talking about this. We want this to go far and wide. Spread the message, and this is the message, that we need to reform the way we think about the training of minds in religious communities. That if we don't fix the deep-seated way in which psychology is changed by religious beliefs, specifically authoritarian religious beliefs, and most importantly, authoritarian ways of teaching religion, if we don't fix that, then all of the other stuff that you want to put in place, background checks, mandatory reporting, oversight, check-ins, uh, opportunities for HR to be you know, a, a listening ear, none of that's really going to work if we don't change the way people think. And the way people think has been deeply affected by a corruption of the very message of holy and healthy religion. And specifically, at least for this, this season, we're going to focus ultimately on the way in which the very teachings of Jesus, the actual teachings of Jesus, will help us to push away or to push against some of these negative ways in which psychology, again, our minds, the way we deal with our bodies and everything else is all affected. And so that's where we come in. We can't help in every way. We're not first responders. We're not crisis intervention people. We're people that want to shine a light on the way that sometimes education go, can go wrong, ways it can go right. We want to work with you, dear listener. We'll love to explore ways in which we could work with you in kind of creating workshops or whatever. But most importantly, tell a friend um, about what we're doing. Share these sorts of resources. If you think we're just too rambly, <laughs> don't worry about us. You can listen to us and just pass on the good word. Check out our show notes. Uh, right, protect your find all the resources. Read them and yourself. Read them yourself and, and do a better job of sharing them. We don't uh, care about that. But please, friends, we don't want to 
to always be thinking about this sort of thing. And we won't always be talking about it on the show, the, the abuse side. But these are the fundamental reasons why what we do want to do, teaching people to think critically, to, to take back some ownership of their own minds and their hearts and their spirits and their bodies. We want to give people back that freedom and that peace that Stacy mentioned earlier wasn't always explicitly handed to you. Right. That it was something that it was your birthright as a daughter of the Most High. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yes. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So, friends, please, as you're as you're heading out in the world, don't uh, don't don't despair. This is sometimes tough stuff. Uh, make sure that you you know get those good people around you. Give them a good, wholesome hug and, and support each other through these things. Do Go not, outside. Yeah. We're all in this together. We are all brothers and sisters. We are all in this together. Let's not let anybody get crushed in the gears of Molech and Babylon's system because we're better than that. And you friends are the heroes. Let's go do it. Until next time, peace upon peace. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter no too much.